0: Good morning. I'm Robin Shannon, and this is Fordham Conversations. Today, I'm joined by human rights attorney Almudina Bernabeu. She has prosecuted some of the worst perpetrators of crimes against humanity as an international attorney and transitional justice program director for the Center for Justice and Accountability. Almudina was also in the documentary How to Nail a Dictator and was on Time Magazine's list of the 100 most influential people. Almudina, welcome. Welcome.
1: Good morning. Thank you
0: very much. So let's take a look at some of your prominent cases. So we'll start out in Guatemala. Uh, you were responsible for the judgment against the former president of Guatemala. And this was the first time in history a head of state was sentenced for genocide. So tell me specifically what General Jose Efrain Rios Monk was accused of.
1: He was the the leading president of oh, what well, was probably the highest moment, historic moment for the repressions a military government organized into this campaign and for which they actually issued military plans. So there's documents that you can see what all of this was orchestrated. And it's reported that most of the 80, more than 80% of the total victims counted by the Truth Commission took place or happened in the period in which he was a president. We're talking about A Truth Commission report that throws numbers around the 200,000 civilians assassinated, mostly Mayan indigenous people. And children. And absolutely. Women, elderly, a lot of cruelty around old people, and obviously a lot of children. So in the year 2000, soon after the Truth Commission report was presented to the public, the victims say, this is not enough. We want... Justice with a different, a different sense of justice. We really want uh, to see these guys to pay or acknowledge what they did. The report. The Truth Commission report, not to be critical, but was one of the softest. So the victim says, "We don't, thank you very much, but we don't like this. Right. So Because opened... it
0: didn't really explain the tragedy exactly. and, the, uh, and the tragic circumstances that they went through.
1: Exactly. In, the in rapes, ju- the
0: murders, the killings, the disappearances, people not knowing where their families were.
1: Exactly, nothing. It was just uh, an account of the crimes. I mean, it is the, it's relevant from the point of the truth, which we know is part of these processes. It's like a public acknowledgement of what it was done to you. That we cannot undermine the power of that, but it was never to be sufficient. So they initiated a, a criminal case in Guatemala, very to me, I mean, very optimistically. In, it didn't go anywhere, and simultaneously, a case was opened in Spain. Spain has a legal provision today, pretty, you know, limited uh, compared to the one that was available or it was open to the to the victims in 1999. That says that only the crime will trigger Spanish jurisdiction, meaning if the crime is of a particular kind, speaking of genocide crimes against humanity, then Spanish courts will have jurisdiction regardless, at the time, the losses, regardless of whether you are part of our country, a citizen, or that you live here or not. So that...
0: Amadina, why is that so important? I have an idea, but why
1: is that so important? To me, it's so important because it was following directly and without any uh, hesitation, a mandate. There was a a huge conquest that came from the Genocide Convention in 1947, from directly from the Holocaust, you know, the Nuremberg trials post-World War II, the idea that some crimes are so horrible that it doesn't, you cannot then come with excuses based on political rights or on civil rights to deny the the victims access to justice. Genocide is a complicated crime, better what most people may think. So we wanted to nail down all the evidence to the different elements of the crime and, and we did it. And that sort of universe of work which is the best thing that can ever happen to this work abroad, was then used in Guatemala this last May, or the, during the last uh, 2013, to prosecute in a Guatemalan court with a lot of courage and, and a lot of difficulties, José Alfredo Rios for genocide.
0: And you got very close to putting him behind bars. The outcome didn't exactly come out like you were hoping. So how did you feel after the outcome changed for Rios Montt? Well, he actually never really acknowledged what he did, correct? Absolutely.
1: You know, it's interesting, they the, the trial went. I think there was a conquest at many levels. And then this will show you how optimistic I am and how much optimism you need to do this work. I actually think there was a successful. To me, it's extremely successful. The the they defense the line of the defense went from denying that any of this happened to saying oh well maybe some abuses were committed by the army to saying okay maybe some of these abuses can be called crimes against humanity but never genocide and so suddenly so they tried
0: to change the definitions and
1: racism became the biggest I mean the in there to me frankly a little primitive but you know it shows you how. I don't I don't know how they sleep at night, but to me, they realized they were measuring in every minute, in my opinion, that the impact that being called killers will have internationally, and then giving up a little bit as they went. So at the beginning was like, oh, we are because you know, the army in these countries is deeply associated to the money, to the business sectors, and they what they call there the oligarchies, you know those who had always the the elites, the economic elites. And the army's struggle since the 70s has been to become an economic elite. Uh, Go figure. But they really have merit to the elites. You know, they are, they, they, I think at the beginning, the military, they get really mad at me when I say this because they were the bodyguards of the elites. The elites used the military to be their, you know, their bulldozers. And later they became part of it. And that was the big conquest of the military. So... You have all of these calculation of how uh, the imp- what impact is going to have for the international arena as They will move around to be called genocides or whatever or to be called killers. So they were making all this calculation, and at the end of the game, they could admit having killed two hundred thousand people, but never call it genocide.
0: I even read that uh, Rios Mon says, "Well, as a leader, I can't micromanage what the military does." <laughs> You're the leader. How exactly. could you not be responsible for what for what your troops quote unquote are supposed to be out there doing to people?
1: Exactly. And that piece of evidence actually since you brought it up at the beginning and in, um, in the context of the Spanish investigation and that's where the granito documentary sort of was built around. So Al Medina in May,
0: 2011, a Spanish judge issued arrest warrants for some of the top military leaders of El Salvador's civil war, accusing them of planning and carrying out the killings of six Jesuit priests in 1989. How did you bring this case to a Spanish national court?
1: It was a lot of work, and actually a connection with El Salvador is a little bit prior, but it was working, you know, not too many people know that in the United States most of, was done most of that work. In the, nine, in the 2000s or 1999, there was an effort in the United States. We do have a couple of laws here, civil only, the torts, which means that you can only ask for uh, damages but it's still very important, statues in which you can go after um, perpetrators for human rights abuses. How did the six Jesuits end up being killed? What happened? The, in, well, in El Salvador, there was a civil war that started just, you know, my five-minute version of the story. that started in 1980. It is considered by Salvadoran people that the war started formally around the killing of Monsignor Oscar Romero, the Archbishop of El Salvador, who was killed March twenty fourth, nineteen eighty. And he um, that that you know El Salvador lived a conflict that lasted about ten years, and it was it was a complicated for for two elements. I think, I and mean, this may Salvadorans may object to my reduction of the story, but I think two elements made it really um, peculiar and really ser- really grave. One is that it really had the, the only or the most important from a military standpoint, resistant movement. The FMLN was called like a guerrilla group that really functioned like an army, had a lot of arms and branches, and they were effective. They were effective in the big context of Latin America. That was the most effective uh, revolutionary groups or resistant groups. That has ended that in one of the wealthiest armies the heavily supported by the United States with a lot of military aid. was one of the richest army. The U.S. decided to invest a lot of money. So that made the war really, really cruel, the consequences of the victory. It's a tiny country where more than 70,000, 79,000 people were killed, 89 or 90% at the hands of the military. When you think that you have a, a revolutionary army as powerful as that was too, it's pretty pretty hardcore. Well, but in this tiny country, the the Catholic Church, no exception in the context of the Cold War and the repression in the Americas, played a, an important role, and specifically the Jesuits of the Central University of San Salvador, called UCA, U-C-A, so we all understand it. They led by Ignacio Yacuria, a Jesuit from Spain, from the Basque Country, a very progressive group of human beings. They had... Being very involved and outspoken on behalf of the victims, on behalf of justice, they are associated and founders and very much intellectually related to what was called the liberation theology in the Americas. They founded down south in Peru, had spread around the region as the civil wars and the conflicts were were uh, growing and were getting more serious. So they were speaking
0: very, up for the, the victims and
1: very political in the most respectful sense of the war I mean people with great ideas very and ideas of Christianity and, and justice and, and equality that I actually I'm a big fan so I declare myself a big uh, fan of those ideas and then active in in the hope that they could end this conflict in a negotiated way in a negotiated solution they were um, talking to the guerrillas talking to the army talking to the government talking to the United States they really were helping. And in 1989, the FMLN attack in an effort to actually, (laughs) it was by surprise, it took the Army by surprise, and they really seized the capital, San Salvador. The Army freaked out, and I'm speaking more from the result of the investigation that we've been doing now, therefore, what is known, perhaps, um, generally, but it, the army freaked out, and there's papers, including in, in the classified documents in the US, they decided to kill what they at the time considered to be leaders of the of the FMLN or leaders of, in the sense of thinking leaders or, or ideological leaders, they just say, but I mean, the idea of that killing was let's intimidate them and let's perpetuate this war. If we really get these exemplary killings and we show them that we can kill anybody, they did that in 1980 to begin the war when they killed the Archbishop. So if now we kill, kill the leaders,
0: it'll put fear in everyone else.
1: Exactly. And let's show them who's the boss. This is
0: Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon talking with human rights attorney Almedina Bernabeu, an international attorney and transitional justice program director for the Center for Justice and Accountability.
1: Pamela Yates, the filmmaker, She's really a close friend, other than obviously a a, a professional filmmaker. She's the one
0: who did How to uh, Nail a Dictator that was part of the Sundance Film Festival, correct?
1: Exactly. Uh And she had done When the Mountains Trumbled back in 1980. So from that filming time, she had extraordinary amount of footage in a warehouse, sometimes somewhere in Brooklyn. So that's how the story, you know, and I don't know the steps, but it's like, okay, so what do you got? What do you get? You know, right. what am I supposed to? And she <laughs> go says, to this well,
0: warehouse in Brooklyn and, and look for it. <laughs> and <look laughs> at and at then this she footage.
1: showed me some of this footage. I was like, I don't want this. This is nothing. <laughs> and it's like, go. And she tells me, story, like, go and look for something else. So I was super bossy. So she went and she found this footage that that you mentioned is an interview back in 1983, I believe, or 1982, 1982. Uh, at the presidential house in Guatemala. And it's directly, she was allowed to interview Efraín Ríos directly as the president of the nation. So, and obviously as a general of the army, very proud. He, people say, was a good military man. So, I mean, in the sense of uh, prestige. And so she interviewed him, very hum- you know, very sweet. She's like this very pretty, you know, 27-year-old North American girl. Trying to be very nice. cute Spanish accent and... He, she, I think, touched very intelligently the sensitive point of a general, which is like, well, people are saying that you are that, that your your soldiers are killing up in the mountains, in the high mountains. The people, mm. it was like she asked him so innocently, exactly. Mm-hmm. And then the guy said, absolutely not. Do you believe? You know, he has a dismissive answer. You will see that in the documentary. But eventually, she says, well, and then are you telling me or something similar that your troops are out of control? Because that is the, you know, in my mind, that's the logic. Exactly. And then she, he went to say, What do you mean? What kind of general will I be? Or what kind of president would I be if my troops were out of control? And I'm paraphrasing, but I mean, he pretty much says, I know exactly what everybody is doing from the Altiplano to the lower mountains to the capital. And that's right. That shows you how an army that was pretty large operated, in that footage was admitted at the trial, and I found it to be very powerful.
0: Do you think it helped to bring more attention to what was going on in Guatemala, the film itself?
1: I think so. I, it was also very helpful. I wish now, obviously, that's, that's out of vain, what I'm gonna say, that all my work is featured in a document. <laughs> it's It's sometimes very hard to explain this work. And to make it make sense to everybody in both sides. So sometimes we humans are pretty clumsy, uh, me number one, and it's sometimes arrogance, vain egos, a lot of things get in the middle. So sometimes, for instance, for the victims, or so some victims, it is hard to see that the case is, is being tried in Spain or litigated in Spain, and some. Particular type of victim, or, or not type, I shouldn't say that, but I mean, human peop, human beings that are maybe not so connected to the world think, why are those Spaniards doing the case there? And you n- not always have the opportunity to explain to them, listen, I will never be able to do in Spain this work if I didn't have the support of the Guatemalan colleagues. And this is how the system needs to work, right? And the truth is, is that it's not always been the case. And I don't mean to be pretentious, but it's that, but that's being my fingerprint. If that, you know, will explain ever any success, in my on my part, will be that I never work alone. This is not an ego thing. I mean, I like to be, Recognized. you know, tall as I am and blonde and all of that. But I mean, it's just. not... It's not about egos for promise, but it's about people, and it's always being. I guess the only piece of success is being that people and the work in the country came first. That is so difficult to explain. Seems like you're justifying your work at times. The documentary came to tell the story without any of us having to justify it, and it was really helpful, extremely helpful.
0: Tell me about your organization and how you got involved.
1: Absolutely. The Center for Justice and Accountability is an NGO, it's a nonprofit organization based in San Francisco, and it's a little bit over 15 years old, so by all means pretty, pretty young.
0: So Almedina, you're also known for reforming Spanish asylum law, so explain what that is and why the impact is so great.
1: I got involved with immigration reform movement that was associated in Spain with the labor unions. In Spain, we never had immigrants. We were a country that produced immigrants, you know, out of the the poverty. But then in the 90s, early 90s, we started receiving a lot of people from the Maghrebian countries, from the Northern African countries, and refugees and asylees from the Balkans, the result of the Balkans Eastern European war. Uh, Despite of having signed a number of treaties, We didn't have national laws to provide for for these people. So it was a nice struggle led by labor unions. We did have a lot of labor tradition in the context of overcoming our own dictatorship and and ruling a lot of around working issues. And the Spanish government was not willing to give the immigrants and refugees the same status that any other citizens. Considering the European countries in the context of the welfare state, we have private education and private medical assistance, medical care. So, when you will give the, a person that status as a citizen, will obviously represent a high cost. So, that was the fight. So, would they. So, they didn't want to,
0: to pro- allow you To provide a status, that, exactly,
1: okay. or to regulate it. Because uh, they were
0: thinking it was going to cost too much money.
1: Exactly. But ironically, it actually, didn't work out because what the government, where the lawyers at the labor union says, okay, well, you don't want to consider them immigrants or refugees, consider them workers. And the government said, well, okay, well, they can unionize, they can be registered as workers. And by means of unionizing and becoming workers, even though they couldn't leave the country, they were able to work, they were able to have their children in the public system, education, public systems, and of course, medical attention. So it worked out really well, and the government was forced as a consequence to finally pass what we call the immigration law and a refugee law, which didn't exist until 1996. So how did that feel? spectacular. And it uh,
0: opened up your worldview, I would assume.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And specifically, not necessarily the only, but in Latin America, because, you know, I grew up with all these conflicts in Latin America going on, and I thought that I was in a progressive country with an open, and, and it was some sort of openness, but I think we always criticize, and, and I don't mean to be forgetful or forgiveful with the, with the U.S. government. There's a clear... I think it's clear for everybody the support that the the U.S. government played in that war and and, and in that, uh, with a lot of contradictions within, you know, definitely helping that army. But it's also one of the most important moments, I say, since the civil rights movement, um, in which civil society in the U.S. took the streets to ask... Uh, the government of the United States to stop helping the armies in Central America to. Because there were rallies save. after
0: and, rallies all over the country, correct?
1: And the Jesuits' case, I think, was the drop—you know—the the last drop in the water uh, glass, and they just say enough. And they took the streets. My own husband was arrested in a federal building, you know, taking because we see a federal building. Uh, The people just took the, you know, that, and then precipitated a decision in Congress, precipitated an investigation that was led by uh, Massachusetts Congress, um, Joseph Moakley. So there was a lot of... How
0: did the United States justify that? The the aid, the military aid? How did they justify not moving forward with doing something?
1: I don't think they justify it. I think that it's been more hiding under the wing. Uh, so they're since... more ignoring it, not necessarily exactly. actively doing something. And I think that there's a little bit of both. I think that there's genuine um, shock in in the U.S. Congress and, and in the U.S. Department of Justice or in the U.S. Foreign Affairs Service. You will listen to some ambassadors, former ambassadors. I think there was shock that, they, that this army was capable or, you know, of doing something like this. And I think that there's, some of that is genuine. But I think there's also a lot of cynicism in some other agencies like the Department of State and, you know, where they have been coexisting with those military guys for 15 years. They've been physically present in El Salvador through the Central Intelligence Agency, through the the Department of Defense. So it's a way not to rock the boat. Exactly. And so I think that there was at least easy to expect that this army would be capable of doing that. Otherwise, it's just to explain the story to yourself in a way that you can live with it. But I think an army that, I mean, an army that is clear that they can kill the archbishop, we're talking about the maximum authority of the Catholic Church in 1980 in El Salvador, can definitely kill, you know, intellectuals. And it's a crime like a little bit like the Guatemala case they we were chatting before. It's a crime that never went away because the Jesuits in, demanded an investigation. The brothers, as they call themselves, and I think that through the families, with the families, demanded justice and in an investigation from the day that crime took place in, on November 16th, 1989. And there was a trial in El Salvador which was a complete joke and a mock trial. Uh, they really offended the families. After that, there was an, an effort in El Salvador. that went all the way to the Supreme Court in the year 2000, also to lose. You see, you know, the victims have that resilience. They just lose and lose and lose. And but they, they don't keep give going. up. And then when when they work in, in, in the United States that I mentioned, those civil cases were evolving a little bit. We even had a case that's kind of my favorite uh, for personal and professional reasons, which was against the assassin of Monsignor Romero, precisely, the, who was living in Modesto, California. So after those cases um, evolved positively in the United States, I think that they, and we work closer with the Salvadoran community, they thought that there was the time to, to do the Jesuits case in Spain. So, where's
0: the where's the case at now, Amadina?
1: The case right now is being is fully litigated in Spain. We are waiting right now. We issued the as you mentioned in two thousand eleven the extradition requests to El Salvador, that they were denied by the Supreme Court, alleging that they can prosecute them, which is not the worst that can happen. That happened also in Guatemala, and then that helps you know to create the momentum when. And then, in the context of the investigation, we found uh, Inocente Montano, who at the time was the Minister of Interior, living happily ever after in Massachusetts. So he was arrested. We combined and we sort of worked with the U.S. authorities, with jurisdiction, and then the the ICE, the the I don't know how the acronym goes, but I mean the Immigration Service in the United States, the Custom Enforcement, blah blah mm-hmm. blah, arrested him. They call him. it ICE, something like exactly. that. Exactly, mm-hmm. and he was. Uh, prosecuted for immigration fraud because he had lied in his temporary protective status application, which is a protection that the, the Salvadoran people, TPS, is called enjoy. He lied seven times, denying that he was a member of the Army. It's just to lie for. That's why his stupidity sometimes betrays them, I'm just telling you, or their arrogance. So he's in jail, currently in jail in the U.S., and we are working right now So they didn't to- even get
0: him for what? Happened? They got him for a lie, right? Exactly.
1: Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, it's, the, it's 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 not ideal. I have to, you know, be loyal to my clients. I think that my clients and myself obviously would like to see that he is charged with the Jesuit. I actually think, and I shouldn't be speaking on behalf of the judge, <laughs> but I, I, from listening and reading the transcripts of the judge in Massachusetts, um, who ruled. And, and sentenced him to 21 months in prison for lying. I think he also wanted that, that he is someday responsible for charged something for doing something so horrible. And mm-hmm. in, in, in this courthouse that has the name of the congressman who led the investigation, Joseph Moakley. So I think it was very poetic in many senses. So we are uh, trying to... Um, give every single thing that the Department of Justice needs and, 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 you know, the extradition through the Spanish court, obviously, to make that extradition happen. The judge in Spain uh, requested uh, his extradition. Now we are in the process of filing um, an, a, a supplementary brief, you know, to give all the information for the recent developments, and we're hoping we get him in Spain. If we do, then we will have a trial for the case. Almedina, I have to
0: ask, um, what is the most challenging thing about being a human rights lawyer? Can you pinpoint one thing?
1: One. I have a list. <laughs> of... <laughs> what are the top three things, Do You know, in this moment, perhaps not always has been the same problem. I think that um, I will say that five years ago or seven years ago, I will identify um the working the evidence getting the evidence getting clients to trust me or witness to trust me and I guess as time goes that you know becomes a little easier just because they
0: have your reputation after it, a right while. and then you right. get to
1: do the work a little better and better I think right now for me that the hardest part is that the believe it or not the war the world is going a little bit backpedalling I mean the little the happenings I thought there's some conquests when it came to the protection of human rights, were won for good. Little that I knew, and then you know, I thought that just things like Rwanda, things like you know the 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 Balkans, U.S. former U.S. Lavia, uh the creation of the ICC. I thought that they really will not be a way back uh, in some conquest. And then for me, the hardest things right now is the the resistance. And stealing governments and people with power. That what we're doing is what everybody should be doing. I'm not saying you know. There's still a political um, decision goes first before the, uh, a legal decision, or before the protection of the victims. We have new players now. We have China, which is an economic power that unfortunately we look. You know, we were thinking about something else, and we didn't realize that it comes out of a very authoritarian regime. And it's, it's, it's used to twisting arms. So anything that touches China or anything that touches the U.S. unfortunately becomes a political complication for your cases. I don't think that that's fair. I don't think that... How any- do they become a political complication? Because they don't want accountability for their own perpetrators. And that is true um, in the U.S. And unfortunately, look at what happened with Guantanamo. Nobody's closing Guantanamo. I want to ask them, what are you afraid of? Because we're talking about accountability that just makes your courts stronger, your rule of law stronger. If you have one, seven, two generals and five soldiers that did rape women, during the Iraq war, I'm just putting an example. Mm -hmm. Don't you want to protect the institution of the armed forces and the integrity of the U.S. courts by establishing reputation? If the case cannot be prosecuted here, but in Spain is open, Don't you want to preserve the relationship and the integrity of the whole process by allowing the judges in Spain to do their work, which, for instance, is one case in Spain that is because of the assassination of a Spanish journalist in Iraq? Don't you want the family of that victim to receive some sort of redress so they leave you alone? If you don't do it, The family's never going to stop. Do you think that a mother and a brother are going to stop asking for justice for their own child? No. So that is what I find today on my birthday uh, and with some years of experience more complicated, that there is still a twist of political will that will take away all of these from the victims, like in a blink of an eye, and I don't understand it.
0: I'd like to thank human rights attorney Almedina Bernabéu. I'd also like to thank my producer, Alan Kamblick. This has been Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. You can hear Fordham Conversations every Saturday at 7 a.m. You can also friend us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and catch up on past shows with our weekly podcast. Stay with us, George Bodarki and Cityscaper Next. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon.